Today we have Taylor Bassett on from Helu Capital. This is a group that I've invested with and I was just really impressed with their whole staff. Uh, Taylor's father-in-law, Jay, also knows somebody that worked, used to work for me at my last company. Uh, that's how I got connected with this group. So they're a real estate development group where they do per project. You can invest with them. It's not a real estate fund. And just been very impressed with everybody I've met there. Excited to see what they do over the years, but wanted to have them on and so everybody could check them out. Hope you enjoy. Taylor, what's up, man? Thanks for coming on today. Yep, thanks. I appreciate the you taking the time. Yeah. Well, uh, tell us about yourself, where you're from, your background, where'd you grow up? Yeah, yeah. So I, uh, I grew up in Sacramento, California um, until I was about 14. I lived in Scottsdale for three years and then ended up after high school in, um, in Utah. I uh, went to BYU. Uh, served a, a full-time mission for the LDS church during that time and then came back and got a degree in accounting and then okay. got a master's degree in tax. Um, and At then, that time, what were you planning on doing? Was it this or was it something else? So I always had a, a general interest in business. I wanted to be in the business world. I didn't really know what that meant. Yeah. Um, I think I even started saying I wanted to study accounting and I had no idea what it was. Yeah. My My dad studied accounting and him and a few other mentors had told me that it would be a good foundation to go into business generally if I didn't know specifically what I wanted to do. Cool. Um, so I took accounting and it clicked and decided to run with it. Where did you serve your mission? Uh, I served in Ogden, Utah, actually. So really I came out to Utah and I never left. But wait, for, so you grew up in mission. Sacramento, but you moved to Utah for, yeah, to go to BYU. So I, yeah, I got a mission call um, while I lived in Provo. I opened it in the dorms. To Ogden. To Ogden. That yeah. is so crazy. Yeah. Yep. Wild. What did you think about that? I'm just curious. So I was speaking Spanish okay. on the mission. I was assigned to the Spanish-speaking population, and that's all I wanted. I wanted to speak Spanish, and yeah. I didn't really care about anything Where else. Where it was. So I was so you excited. Were yeah. Yeah. Crazy, man. So after after all that, then what? Uh, so I finished uh, my, my degree in accounting and then master's in tax. And did an internship during that time and went to work for Deloitte um, in their tax practice. For how long? Uh, for about two and a half years. Okay. Um, and I I did a little bit of everything. I was in their uh, federal tax group, but I, I tried to participate with a lot of um, financial services uh, clients. So anything yeah. from venture capital, private equity, um, real estate investment trust, yeah. just to get exposed to that industry. Because at that point, um, I had really made plans and knew that I wanted to be long-term in commercial real estate. So I wanted to see those clients from that perspective, from the tax side before jumping in as an owner operator. So did that for a couple of years before starting Helu. How did you like Deloitte, by the way? I, they just flew in, we're meeting with them for some things with the business, but what was your experience like? Uh, so it, it's kind of funny. My experience with Deloitte, uh, I don't know if they want me to advertise this, but I had two kids in the couple of years I was there. So I had eight months of paternity leave while no I was at Deloitte. <laughs> so I say I was there just a, little bit, a, a couple of years and really eight months, you know, basically when, whenever it wasn't busy season, I wasn't at work. So yeah. they treated me really well, obviously. That's and awesome. um, I got really good experience. The, the public accounting thing definitely isn't for me. Um, billable hours and busy seasons. It's, it's tough. And it, for some people it, it makes sense, but for me, it wasn't ever the long-term plan. So yeah, I, I spent about as much time as I planned on. It's just a, such a massive company. I, I think they told us so they were here on Tuesday mm -hmm. 
I think they have 250,000 employees right now. Yeah. That, worldwide. That doesn't surprise me. They're it's a huge they're, beast. Yeah. Right? They're enormous. Yeah. Biggest accounting Tons firm of resources. In the world. Yeah. Yeah. They said 80% of all Fortune 500 companies are a current client. So they just have the biggest network. Yeah. Um, but pretty impressive. So after Deloitte, then where? Uh, so then uh, I started Helu. So okay. I was actually. Um, it was uh, the beginning of 2020, actually. So right before COVID started to ramp up when I was, uh, we just had our, our second child, my wife and I, yeah. and was looking at jumping into the industry at that point. I felt like it was a good time. Okay. And my father-in-law, he spent his whole career in the multifamily real estate space. So I talked with him and um, really wanted the opportunity to work with him and, and learn from his experience and bring my accounting and tax background and start a business that way. So we decided to start a family company with um, Jay, my father-in-law and, and Weston, his son. Um, he's my brother-in-law and partner. He was actually finishing up a degree at the time. And the three of us started Helu. Um, that Did spring. I meet Weston when I came in? I know Jay was there. I, I don't think there. you met Weston. Okay, cool. So he's, he's our CFO and he actually does a little bit more of the accounting and okay. Which is what I would have guessed you were going to do. Yeah, that. yeah. I kind of started doing that and and quickly fell into kind of the transactions and legal um, side of the business, okay. the debt and equity, putting yeah. the deals together. That was a lot more exciting to me. And Weston, he spends some of his time doing the accounting stuff, and I help him uh, a little bit. He does most of it. He's also uh, leads our sourcing team, so underwriting and looking for new deals. So yeah. We're a small enough company that everybody wears several hats. So then let's get into Hilo, their background. And it, a lot of that's probably Jay's background. Yeah, Jay and a, a couple other principals there. So okay. um, started in the late 90s um, in property management and eventually uh, working for a global conglomerate and overseeing management of about 30,000 units in all 50 states. And then residential. At that, uh, all, all multifamily. Okay. Well, there was a collection of single family homes, but okay. all, all residential. Yeah. Okay. Um, at that point, uh, Jay, our principal made the transition over to, um, starting a development company and he ran, uh, this family's company as a developer in GC building about 5,000 units along the Wasatch front. Um, and then the transition from that company and working with that family to doing our own family business was when I started. Um, so that was just a logical time to um, part ways with them and uh, kind of so do our own thing. It sounds like that company was doing ground up development and they were the property management company. That's right. right. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So that's where he really, really just, learned those models. Yeah. And, and at that point, the property management, it wasn't third party management. It was managing their own assets. Yeah. So whereas in where he started was only third party management Okay. for other owners. Okay. So then the, the company officially started in 2020. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Talk to me about that because that's the COVID year, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So it was kind of a funny time to start a business. And January, February, when we started ramping things up, it was something people talked about, didn't realize how bad it was going to be. But yeah, we, uh, we started with just a couple um, third-party property management contracts for projects that Jay had ownership in. We just took over management. Um, and then a third one by the end of the year. And we, I mean, we were really just getting our feet wet in the industry. We went straight to Texas where we already were managing and owned a few other projects. Yeah. And we were concerned about COVID and 
overly cautious. The nice thing, travel was really cheap. We were the only people on the airplanes. Um, so it was really easy to get out there and spend a lot of time babysitting these assets and uh, making sure we were still collecting. And all in all, um, COVID, there were some difficult parts, certainly. And I know it negatively affected a lot of lives. Um, yeah. But at least in our business, we were able to get through it. For the most part, people got rental assistance. Um, it was difficult to keep people um, employed that, uh, you know, were receiving checks in the mail and, and decided to stop working. So we went through some struggles like all companies, but for the most part pushed through and, and really benefited from the past couple of years. I remember you bring up flights and I flew a lot in 2019 and then 2020, I flew a really good amount as well. And I is just the weirdest times. I remember like having three, four people on an airplane. Oh yeah. Like, it was it awesome. Was you get a whole row, both yeah. sides to yourself. Yeah. And, and then I remember that fall and kind of the spring of 2021, things started to fill up and it being full again. And I remember thinking, wow, it's so weird. It's full flight. Yeah. You know, it was like now the, it's back to that. The safest time to travel was right during COVID when nobody yeah, worked. You nobody got the plane to yourself. I didn't go within 10 feet of anybody. For sure. So maybe let's just give the listeners a good overview. What is Hilu? Yeah. So Hilu's a full service uh, multifamily real estate company. So we manage our own assets through our property management company, Hilu Residential, and that's where the rubber meets the road. For us, it's uh, it's really not the, I'd say that the end all be all in our business. That's not why we operate is to manage properties. We manage properties in order to increase their value so that we can benefit from the upside when we sell the asset. Yeah. So, um, Again, as of right now, we've, we've done a little bit of third-party management for the most part, only our own assets. It just makes sense to be in property management. But then on the other side, because you say full service, so obviously that's like the back end, tail end of everything. On the front end, it's mostly ground up developments or purchasing and like what percentage is what? I'd say it's about 50% of our time. And that's probably just a breakout of the people in our office between the ground up construction projects yeah. and the, we call them the value add projects where we buy an existing asset that needs some love, um, do some CapEx work. So capital expenditures um, where we're say renovating the interiors of units, replacing roofs. And it's always multifamily. Always multifamily. So, so I, I think like if you're listening, you're new to real estate investing, basically it's a, when you guys say, you know, full service real estate investment fund, it's finding multifamily, whether they're building it from the ground up or purchasing old units and, you know, just gutting them or I don't know how heavy the, the reef fab is basically, but, but then just property managing those. And so right. two questions with this, what percent is building from the ground up versus finding existing properties? So as of right now, we own and manage about a thousand units in Texas that are existing assets. Um, we're building 350 units in Idaho Falls. Okay. And then we have another 1,000 units in the pipeline for ground-up construction. Okay. So it's going to be pretty even here quickly. Okay. And I'd say right now it's it's a tough market to buy in for the existing projects. So we're seeing uh, things tighten up with the interest that. rates come up. Well, yeah, just the changing interest rate environment oh, is making sure. it much less enticing. Yeah, with um, cap rates and cash Yeah, there's a lot that. of retrades yeah. going on. Okay. Uh, prices are coming down and harder to see upside right now, whereas the ground-up construction, we're seeing a little bit more value that we can add. Sure. Um, so those are making more sense at least this year for us. What percentage of the properties do you think you'll hold on to long-term versus sell? 
That's a good question. I think as of right now, it'd be a very low percentage that we're holding long-term, okay. maybe 10 to 20%. And that's because we're, I mean, we're in the business, we're owner operators, we're looking to add value. And if we're just holding an asset and let's say it's valued at a 4% cap rate, which means that uh, what it's worth is, uh, can be computed by the amount of income that it produces each year, which would be 4% of the value. So yeah. if we've already added as much value as we think we can add, Really, all we're gaining at that point by not selling is 4%, 4%. annually Yeah. Um, beyond just whatever growth happens in the market organically. So at that point, we look for a disposition to go and add value greater than the cap rate somewhere else. Yeah. And if you're new to investing, you hear 4% and you're like, man, that's so low. But there's a lot of other benefits to real estate, like depreciation, tax benefit, appreciation. Right. So it, well, it's not just the percentage return, right? Well, and that, that's what I mean. So if we go into an asset and we can add a significant amount to the bottom line, we might be able to get a 15% annual, um, annual investment, excuse me, internal rate of return is what we refer to often yeah. IRR. Yeah. So we might be able to get a 15 to 20% annual return, but then after we've added value and, and we're stabilized, the business plan's kind of over and going forward, the marginal benefit might only be the cap rate. So by selling it, we can sell it at a at a four percent cap rate, pull all of our value out, and then deploy that money into another asset that needs some more value and get much more than um, what a normal investment would return. Let's talk about a common investor that invests with you guys. What do you think they're wanting to get out of it? Is it are they just trying to grow their um, assets, or do you think they're trying to get some type of passive income? What do you think they're coming to you for? Yeah. So I think it's a combination of things. Everybody likes passive income and that's getting really popular right now. I mean, just YouTube and social media, people are talking a lot about passive income opportunities and, and I think, um, investors are a little bit skittish on securities and, um, the markets right now with, uh, just the economic climate that we're in and real estate is a tangible asset that you can see and, and, um, hold long-term and, and it's, it's there, you can stand there and look at it. And I think people feel good about that. And, um, a lot of our investors are just excited for the opportunity to participate in multifamily because it's kind of a world where, um, you know, unless you have $20 million, you can't participate. So when people can come in and spend a couple hundred thousand investing in, in one of our assets, it's a great opportunity because they can be a small investor in this asset and we syndicate each deal individually. So we're not a fund. Uh, we don't have a fund, at least at this time. Um, so each deal, we raise all of the equity and people can pick, hey, I like this project. I want to invest in this project specifically. Yeah. And they can get short term upside. Um, it's a little bit higher risk in their portfolio because these are leveraged assets and um, obviously relying a little bit on the market um, to cooperate with us. So on top of that, I think people also are looking for uh the losses that come with real estate. So because they're highly leveraged assets and we are able to accelerate depreciation on um, certain assets on the property, um, usually you recognize losses when you own these projects, especially when we're uh, doing our, our value add projects and, and doing CapEx, uh, people are able to recognize losses. So even though it's producing positive cash flow on paper for tax purposes, you're recognizing losses, which can offset other passive income. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. You talk about, you know, certain people being skittish with the markets and things. I just read an article this morning that said 
the stock market has had the worst half. So the last six months, the worst six months in 52 years. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. So yeah, I, th- I think people are looking for real estate right now. What's the average check size that investors are putting in right now with you guys? I'd say average is probably about 250,000. Okay. At least historically. And it depends on the size of the asset. You know, we have one where we're building a 500 unit project in Texas and that one will be uh, potentially 30 million in equity. And then we have another one that we just bought. That's a value add project in San Antonio, 28 units. It was just under 2 million in total equity. So really depends on the size of the project. What's the Woodruff one? Uh, The Woodruff one that, uh, that was 99 units in Idaho falls. And that was about uh, five or 6 million in equity. Okay. Between there. What's a projected return that you guys are shooting for with these projects? So on the ground up construction projects, we're probably looking more at the high teens, low twenties. Um, and that's to the investor. So net of all of our fees and the, the promoted interest that would be paid out to the sponsor. Um, you'd be looking at high teens, low twenties. That's per year. That's per year. Correct. So let's just go through a scenario. Let's say somebody put in a hundred grand at one of these projects. What do you think the typical time frame is? So um, we'll start with the the ground up construction projects. Okay. So those ones are a little different than the value adds because they obviously don't produce income during construction. Um, so we would close and raise the money at the same time the construction loan would close. The build could be anywhere from eighteen to thirty six months, but let's say it's a twenty four month build time, and they put in their hundred thousand dollars. That gets deployed along with their portion of the debt that comes from whoever's financing that project, which could be a local bank, uh, life insurance company, yeah, HUD. Um, so their hundred grand is acting as a down payment. Correct. Okay. It's a down payment. And say if their hundred grand, uh, you know, pretend it's a, a a ten million dollar project, and it, this would never actually happen. But there's a nine million dollar loan and one million of equity. So they own ten percent of the entire project. So ten percent of the equity. And also 10% of that $9 million loan would be theirs as well. So they're effectively getting a $900,000 loan um, and putting 100000 down, but the loan is non-recourse to them because of the LLC they're investing in. So we, mm-hmm. as, the, as the sponsor, one of our principals or a combination of them would, would guarantee the loan so that if anything goes bad, they couldn't come after the investor. So where it's similar is if you were buying a single family home as an individual, you're going to put you know, 20% down, whatever. And you're using leverage, right? You're putting that 20% down to buy something that you're getting a loan for the other 80%. The difference with this situation though, is you're not the one getting the loans. You don't have, you're not liable for anything, but you're getting the benefit of the leverage, right? Correct. So the, the investor, this, uh, individual that's putting a hundred thousand dollars into an LLC and that LLC is the borrower. So, we would build the project 24 months um, as soon as construction's done, lease it up, get it to 90, 95% occupancy. At that point, we would refinance out of the construction loan into a perm loan. Um, and then once the project stabilized, we'd start looking at uh, the next opportunity. So uh, looking at selling the asset or if we have a, a perm loan that needs to stay a, a loan assumption and somebody to come in and take our equity position. And potentially, depending on how the project's doing, 
at the refinance after construction, we might be able to pull a significant amount of our cash back out of the project. And that would be a scenario where it might make sense to hold the project long term because we were able to lever the deal back up, pull out our initial equity to put somewhere else. And that's not a taxable event. So that's a return of capital um, without having to right. pay taxes like you sold the asset. So that this part is key, though. Let's say you guys did refi. People still have their ownership in that asset. Uh-huh. But then with the refi money, if you rolled that into another project, are, is their money being invested into another project as well? Yes. And, and it really just depends on the structure. And because we syndicate each deal separately, each one's going to be a little bit different. But generally speaking, um, a return of capital, you would you would have to get all of your initial money back plus at least a preferred annual return um, before you would lower your ownership in the deal. So um, the first dollars that come out of the project when you sell or when you refinance go to the investors. And those, they could either take that money back or roll it forward into the next deal, which is usually what we look to do is roll cash forward and do it again somewhere else. And that way somebody starts with $100,000 and maybe that project earns an equity multiple of 2.5. So at year five, they have 250,000 and they can then roll that 250,000 maybe into two or three projects at that point. And five more years, now you're looking at potentially nine projects. So that's how people become diversified over time is even starting with just one asset. If we keep rolling that money forward, it can spread farther into other markets and asset classes. Yeah. So there's a lot. uh, This is awesome. This is what I wanted to get into is all this talk. So let's just like, let's dissect a little, a lot of parts of it. First thing is average time frame on a project that's built from the ground up. So the average like refight or whatever. Yeah. So I'd say three to five years, three to five years is a good estimate. Yeah. So if I, and we're just talking scenarios and knowing that as a listener, this could vary very greatly. So this, these right. are just like hypothetical, for sure, rough scenarios, just more to understand it conceptually, right? Mm-hmm. So we throw in a hundred k, and let's say five years later, we got it ninety eight percent occupied. Whatever you guys are going to refi and maybe hold on to that asset. So at that point, do I have if you're going to refi and take that money into another project? Am I getting ownership in that next project plus the current project with that same 100K? Yes. And so, except one thing. So the the refinance would definitely happen much earlier than year five. I, I say five years because that might be the, the hold time for the entire project, meaning... To sell. We, we refinance at year three and then yeah. sell at year five. Yeah. yeah. And okay, so, so at year three then when we're going to refi and throw it in somewhere else. Uh-huh. That's the part that I was getting to. Yeah. You would keep, you would keep ownership in the project and um, be able to roll your money forward into the next thing. And at, really at any transition like that, we look to our partners to ask what, uh, what their preference do. is. Sure. Some people want to cash out and just get the money back right away. And others want to want to be in it for the long haul. So if we cash out and we just say, okay, look, scenario one in this hypothetical situation we're talking about is a cash out. And you said like 2.5 X. So my hundred K has gone to 250 K. Yep. Then you guys say, look, we're going to build three projects now. And I could say hundred K and one hundred K and two 50 K and three, something like that. Potentially. Yeah. And if everybody wants to roll forward that, that hundred K that became 250 and that hypothetical scenario, we, we started with a million. So now it's two and a half million of equity. 
we would probably look for that LLC to divide that money up and roll forward itself. So everybody would be going forward the same percentage oh, in the other percentage. projects. Okay, got it. Not necessarily. I mean, okay. somebody could cash out, but there's other complicated parts to that. Like if one person wants to cash out when we sell and others don't, um, that could potentially uh, make a 1031 a little bit more difficult, which would be a, a deferral of the tax gain. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of moving parts, but generally speaking, everybody potentially could have the opportunity to roll forward into several projects. So the 250K represent represents two and a half million. Yeah, that would be 10% of that two and a half million dollar total equity in that hypothetical deal we talked about. Yeah, and that two and a half would roll into the next project. That's right. Okay. What if you refied and you were going to hold on to that asset? Would I own my percentage in that asset plus part ownership in a new project with the same amount of money? So it depends on how much money you pulled out. If you pulled out that entire 250K, you wouldn't have any more ownership, but it's not likely that, I mean, well, it's impossible that all of the equity would be pulled out. That would essentially be a loan assumption or a sale. If we're just talking about a refinance, it might be that a hundred grand stays in that deal okay. and you're only pulling out 150K. So you have 250 grand of value at that point. And if you were to refinance and roll into something else, you'd have to leave some money in the current deal. Yeah. I mean, a two and a half X return that can compound pretty quick. Absolutely. So if there were new projects every, let's just say four years, again, this could vary widely, mm -hmm. but let's say, you know, you throw a hundred K in in four years, it's 250 K. Yeah. That rolls into another project in four years you know, then that builds up and then another four years. And I mean, over the course of 12 to 15 years, that's, that's a good amount of money. Yeah. Probably absolutely. enough to maybe retire depending on what your monthly income is. If you had that full principal and you had it and you were drawing like five to 8% a year or something. Uh -huh. So it's, it's pretty powerful if you don't touch any of this and you don't need it and you can just let it ride. Right. Right. No, it's definitely a, a great opportunity for long-term growth, but uh, it's very illiquid. So uh, like you mentioned, if you don't if need you it, don't need so it. Yeah. if this is somebody's save emergency savings, then uh, this wouldn't be a, an appropriate investment because it's not money that can easily be taken back out. It, it might sure. be tied up for a number of years. In your guys' mind, what's the benefit of doing this versus if I'm like, you know what, I'm going to take that same hundred K and go buy an Airbnb or a single family home, or just go buy a duplex or a fourplex and manage it myself. Uh, that last part, manage it myself. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, property management comes with its, its headaches and, yeah. and some people like to do that and that's fine. Um, I definitely think that, uh, the multifamily industry is a little bit more sophisticated of a market and I don't know, you have better resources just generally. Uh, one would be financing. So one of our projects in Texas, a year and a half ago, we refinanced to a, uh, a HUD loan. It's a HUD, a HUD 223F loan is what it's called. It's a 35-year sure. fully amortizing loan at 2.58%, and that's a fixed interest rate, and it was a $25 million loan. And you just don't have that kind of financing on smaller projects. So that's just one example. Um, another thing would be construction. If you want to do um, renovations of your Airbnb, you're going to be paying a lot more per door um, for a duplex, if you're hiring a GC to come in, mm -hmm. than if you were to have 200 doors and have a large GC come in, bring in all the subs and trades and get it all done. 
um, you just have better resources yeah. with volume. Yeah. For me, it was a time thing. That's why I invested with you guys is it's just time. I don't want to manage it myself. Yeah. It, it can take up a lot of time. For certainly. sure. And I, the other thing I'd say is, uh, well, I think time sums it up, but they're just, there are little emergencies that happen. And if you own a duplex and two people move out and they're moved out for two months, well, you're at 0% occupancy. If you have an emergency when you have 200 units and a few people move out, you might still be at 90% occupancy. So you're still producing income even when you have a few people that aren't paying rent. Yeah. Something I always think about is whenever I look at really successful people that have generated a lot of income in whatever their trade is, you see a pattern and just common threads and the quote, do what you do best and outsource the rest. I see that all the time with people that have done really well. And I, I look at people that are maybe early on in their investment journey or whatever, and they try to go a mile wide and an inch deep and they try and do every little thing. And it, yeah. to me, it just doesn't make sense. Like you guys have such a deep background in property management and development. And so it's like, you guys have already learned so many lessons that I don't want to spend my time learning. Right. Right. And so that's why it makes sense to me. Um, I would also guess that a good majority of the, of the worth is done in the development stage or the rehab stage. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Because if we're just all competing for a big multi-unit, let's say a hundred unit thing and everything's already done, how can you go create value? Right. And it's if, already there. If, if the market, exactly to your point, if, if assets are trading at a four cap and you go in and you're not adding any value, you buy an asset um, at a 4% cap rate and do nothing to the income. Well, your return is just that it's 4%. Yeah. So there has to be some way that you can add value to affect the bottom line. And then it's exponential, the amount of returns you can get because, um, well, just the, the math being that the, the denominator is a, a percentage, this cap rate, when you increase net operating income, there's an exponential increase to the value of the project. So a $100,000 increase to net income yeah. is very significant to the value of the project itself. Sure. How do you guys make money throughout the, this whole process? So we reimburse ourselves for costs um, through fees that we charge. So we charge property management fees, which are uh, standard in the industry. Usually they're on a normal size asset, 100 units plus. It's about 3% of collections each month. Um, that just pays us to take care of the accounting and management of the employees and that sort of thing. Um, we would also charge a development fee when we develop a project on the ground up construction to manage the GC and um, the draws. And what is that fee? Uh, that's usually a percentage of the hard and soft costs. So uh, a normal fee would be like 5% of hard and soft costs. Okay. So it can be several million dollars paid out over 24 months of construction. Yeah. And that pays same thing employees. Um, and really where we can make money is on the back end. So we set up what's called a, a waterfall um, so that most of the risk is assumed by us. Um, part of that is where we or one of us is guaranteeing the loan and the investor, they get all of their money back plus a preferred return. Um, typically a preferred return, let's say it's like 8%. So no matter what, after the loans paid off, you're owed all of your money back plus 8% annually um, before we're paid anything. 
But after that preferred return, we start to participate in the upside. So um, I mentioned that equity multiple, let's say it was two and a half. Maybe the equity multiple on the project was three and net of everything, you got 250,000 and that 50,000, that incremental top side was our participation. So maybe after a year, 8% return, 20% of the project um, goes to us, 80% back to the investors pro rata up until say a 12 or a 14% return. And then we get a larger percentage. So um, as the project does really well, we have the opportunity to make money. And if it just does okay, if it's 8%, then we really don't make anything. So, so is it a set percentage return or is it just keeping the delta? Uh, the preferred return is a set percentage at the very beginning. And then the upside is just a delta. It's just based on um, how well the project does. So we're obviously very incentivized. And it's why we set it up this way to really knock it out of the park. And we'd like a 25, 30% annual return because that might mean an 18% return to the investor. And then the dollars uh, on top of that are what we receive for our promoted interest. Yeah. So what's the set percentage return that you guys know you're going to get either way? Well, it, it's not a set percent. It, I mean, it's nothing's a guarantee. It's just, we can't receive any money until you've received your guaranteed return. So a normal preferred return would be about 8%. Okay. And like I said, even after that 8% annual return, the investors would receive the majority of the cash flow on top of that. So it starts to, that's why it's called a waterfall. We, we participate more and more as returns get higher. Yeah. What are the tax benefits to the investor? So uh, it's an LLC tax is a partnership. So when we recognize depreciation um, that flows through and offsets the net operating income on the project and they would uh, get a K one with a, with a loss on it. Um, unless you're an active real estate investor, you usually would need to offset that against other passive income. So um, if the only other income you have is your day job, you would have to suspend those losses and hold them until you have a gain one day. Um, and then as long as that it's in the business plan and everybody wants to, we could potentially 1031, um, which that, I mean, that's a, a section of the tax code, but it's 1031. It's kind of become a verb now. Um, but mm -hmm. it, it's a, it's a tax deferred exchange. So yeah. a like kind exchange where you sell the asset and within a certain period of time, direct those funds into a similar investment. What if somebody that that's coming out of it? What about coming into it? If they just sold the property, could they 1031 into this? Uh, potentially. So depending on the size of the asset. So we usually, uh, what you have to do in that scenario, you can't 1031 into an LLC. You have to go directly into real estate. So you have to have what's called a tenants in common interest in the project. And we usually can't have more than four ticks in a project just for the financing so that we get. four allocations total. Yeah, four ten thirty one. So if it's a ten okay. million dollar project and somebody's selling a townhome and has a hundred grand, it probably doesn't make sense You'd for them to ten thirty one. Bigger one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What about so back to the losses? If somebody's not a W two and they're a ten ninety nine, then it's easier to use the loss, right? Uh, you'd have to. So I I can't give tax advice. You'd yeah. have to consult your tax practitioner, but um. It, it's the passive activity loss rule. So it's really just has to set offset other passive income, which if you're a, if you're a business owner, then it could offset that income. 
But I mean, it just really depends on how you earn your income. So there's just a little bit more. Give us an idea though. Somebody put in a hundred K what yeah. type of loss are they going to be able to offset potentially? So on a ground up construction project, at least initially, there's not going to be nearly as much losses as an existing project because there's no asset there and land doesn't depreciate. Right. So in the first year, it might be really low and, and it might uh, be higher in years two, three, and four. But let's go back to an existing project where we did do a cost segregation. We had one investor um, put a million dollars into a project in Arlington. And that year he got an $800,000 loss allocated to him on his tax return. Wow. So 80% of his investment wow. was recognized as a loss that year. So it, and it's very significant when you do a cost segregation, um, how much of a loss you can recognize. Yeah. So, so it's actually depending on what's happening and it obviously advising with your, your tax professional, they could come to the table and say, look, I probably need to do an existing project versus a ground up. Yeah. Right. Based off their tax liability situation. Some people that's the case. They come to us purely because they need, um, or are seeking investments that are, that produce losses so that they can offset some taxable income. Okay. And that potentially could be the best situation for them. And again, uh, that depends on the, the current tax law. It's looking like that could change this year. Yeah. So uh, the tax code is always changing slightly. So it's always going to be a little bit different. That scenario I mentioned is, is really, really awesome. And I, I don't That's think insane. it would, it would happen like that in the future based on yeah. the changes that are coming, but uh, potentially it could. Is there any situation where somebody could come to you guys and say, look, I want to get a monthly income check instead of being tied up for four years. Do you guys ever see yourself doing anything like that? Uh, so like, like a, like a loan or like no, a bond issuer? No, more so like, Hey, I want to, I want to hold on to a project. Like I want to go in on this oh, oh, big 200 door unit, but I want to get a monthly check from all the tenants and you guys are the property management company. Oh, absolutely. Instead of the two and a half X return in four years. Yeah, no. It, so it would, the investors would just have to agree if, if somebody that owns 5% of the project wants that and everybody else wants to yeah. sell, then, then it's hard. But, but what I'm saying is, do you think you'll ever dedicate a project just absolutely. to that appetite? For sure. Okay. A hundred percent. We'll do that. Cool. Um, is there any other common questions that you guys get that we haven't gone through? Um, no, I don't think so. Um, I, I will say that I may have mentioned this before, but we're not a fund. And so it's just project by project. Yeah. And, yeah. and we typically, we invest with friends and family. Um, so a friend of a friend is, is a connection to us. Basically we don't go and generally solicit for deals. Like we yeah. don't post it online and, and try to crowdfund. Um, that's possible for groups to do. There's a lot more um, expenses associated with that and headache that you need to deal with the SEC. Um, we're exempt from registration with the SEC under 506B um, because we um, issue a PPM to all of our investors, which is a disclosure document telling them about all the risks associated with it. Kay. They would self-certify that they're an accredited investor um, and then move forward investing that way, understanding the risk is associated with it. What's the minimum check size? Generally, I'd say it's about $100,000. Okay. But on a larger project, it could be... 500,000. And if the credit investor term is new to you, just Google it. It's real, real easy, really quick to understand. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there's any other questions, um, what current projects are open right now? Um, so there's a couple existing projects that we're looking at that, 
uh, well, we're going to purchase, but all of the equities raised. So, um, so those I are guess full. I shouldn't talk about those ones, yeah, but they're full. just the, as far as what's in the pipeline, yeah, we're working pipeline? on those projects and then ground up construction. We have really five projects that we're looking at. Wow. Um, and those development projects can take a long time to get rolling. So it sure. might be 18 months before one of those breaks ground, but, um, but you won't wait 18 months to take money on those. Right? Uh, well, it depends. So it might be 18 months before we even break ground on the, on the construction loan. So we might be working on permits that entire time. Um, not all of them are going to take that long, but it, it's just that initial stage. That's part of why the developer fee is paid out. It's reimbursing a lot of the the time that was spent up front could have been years sure. getting the land ready for development. Sure. So, um, I'd say in the fall, we have probably two projects that could break ground in Texas Okay, that are ground up construction of, of apartments. So those are two opportunities like for a listener that might be coming down the pipeline. Right. Okay. Yep. How do you choose which states you're going to do projects in? Uh, you know, it, we just kind of go where the market takes us. Um, I mentioned that we built a lot of units in, in Utah and it's hard to buy existing in Utah right now. It's, it's, um, an oversaturated market and cap rates are very low. It's just hard to add a lot of value for us, yeah. at least right now. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of people still making great money in Utah. Texas has made sense for us. There's um, a lot of growth, a lot of investors um, and debt is interested in, in placing funds in Texas. They really like that market. So we go to a lot of different conferences several a year where we'll um, uh, rub shoulders with all the the, the different players in the industry from vendors to lenders and equity investors. And it becomes pretty clear at those conferences where people are interested in placing their money. So um, obviously we're not going to have one small project in uh, Rhode Island and another small project yeah. in Colorado. We'd like to focus um, our efforts into one place if we're going to be traveling out there, especially because we're a smaller team. But well, right now, Texas and Idaho has been the best bet for us. The reason why I ask is it seems like a lot of my friends that are doing big real estate developments, they're staying in red states. And it's not because that's the political party that they choose to follow. It's because that's where they have the most protection as an owner. Yep. Because it seems like blue states are more favorable to tenants. Red states are more favorable to owners. Yeah. There's a lot of scary potential legislation that's out there. Um, rent ceilings. Um that could really harm the real estate industry and, and, and owners in those states. So yeah, I definitely hear that. And there's definitely a lot of concern in the industry and that's why we're sticking to Marxist markets like Texas and Idaho, where we feel a little bit safer as an owner. Yeah. What about like for you personally, I'm sure like how much, what percentage, not dollar amount, but are you looking at this where you're putting a lot of your personal money into this? Are you doing anything outside of this? Like, do you have single family homes or, Airbnbs or anything outside or? Yeah. So I, I mean, and, and I'm obviously, I'm in the industry, so I probably put a much greater percentage than the average person would because it's you my, it. yeah. Uh, yeah, it's my day job. It's what I'm doing. Yeah. I believe in what I'm doing. So, um, you know, it might be 50% for me and I do, uh, invest personally in all of these deals that I can, even if it's a much smaller amount. Cool. Um, but I, you know, I've got my 401k and, uh, financial planner that helps me just uh, keep my brokerage account. And I, I believe in diversification of assets yeah. as much as you can. And I wouldn't advise anybody to put all of their money into real estate. And we have some investors that do that and they're aware of the risks and they just like real estate and they yeah. don't trust the stock market and don't want to put any money there. And that's great. 
Um, me personally, I, I'd like, I think I'd like to spread my money out a little bit farther. As far as real estate, I'm definitely more focused on multifamily. I think it's a, a safer, more stable bet. Um, you look at times like the Great Recession, it was a great time for multifamily. Everybody was moving to apartments. I mean, people couldn't afford homes. Sure. Um, some of our, our principal's greatest success was building apartments in 2009 through 2012. Yeah. What's the investment you're most excited about, whether you're in one now or in the future outside of this industry that you're in? Oh, that's a good question. I'd say um, probably the ones that I'm most excited about are we're actually under construction already, our projects in Idaho Falls. Those are, um, they're just perfect for that market. And it's just, it's an up and coming market. There's a ton of growth. Um, there's no end to the amount of units they could place there that would get filled up. Very high occupancy. People are moving in um, from blue states, um, especially the, now, the new work from home culture. You have people moving that, that work for tech companies in San Francisco still moving out to Idaho yeah. uh, for cheaper rent, and they just work remotely. So totally. really excited about those projects. We're building about 350 units there right now. What city is that? Idaho Falls. Is it in Idaho Falls proper uh -huh. or the surrounding area? No, yeah, it's in one's at Jackson Hole Junction, right at the okay. south end, and the other one's on Woodruff, downtown Idaho Falls. It's yeah, I mean they saw, wasn't that the number one market last year, Idaho? Yeah, and yeah. Utah was number two. I think I Boise, think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. What about for just you personally now outside of real estate and everything we spoke about? Is there anything that you're really excited about from an investment perspective? You know, I, I'm probably biased, but I think the only thing I'm really excited about right now and that I trust is, is real estate. I'm, yeah. <laughs> a, I'm kind of, uh, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm a believer that, you know, you shouldn't sell when, uh, the market's down. You should, that's when it's time to buy, but yeah, um, Warren Buffett quote. Yeah. I, I, uh, I think that I'm just excited about the potential multifamily projects we're working on. I think that they're a good long-term play and a safer spot, at least for my money than, than other opportunities that I have in front of me. Yeah, it's so interesting. I, it's just psychology, man. How Warren Buffett said, "Be greedy when everybody else is fearful, yeah. and be fearful when everybody else is greedy." And you have to like I I catch myself all the time. The natural default programming is to think what everybody else is thinking. Yeah, you know yeah. I think you have to be very intentional to go across the grain. Yeah, and well, and I I can't quote him directly, but I think he says something like, "We buy everything else on sale. When there's a rebate on cars, that's when you buy." When Clothes go on sale, 50% off you buy. Why yeah. shouldn't stocks be the same? When they it's go the on same, sale, but it, it doesn't work like that. Yeah, it's tough to do. Yeah. I heard somebody else say last week too, run when everybody else is walking and walk when everybody else is running. And so it's so interesting right now because we're seeing a shift, Yeah, right? For sure. We've we've had a really good 12 years. I mean, obviously outside the, the COVID little blip, but we most industries came back and rallied really hard post-COVID. Yeah. And everybody Absolutely. was running. And yep. I think everybody now is just starting to walk again yep. and slow down. So I think there'll be a lot of wealth created in the next year or two, just like there was when COVID took its dip. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the transitions that creates a lot of opportunity, right? Absolutely. So to me, I'm fascinated by any of your personal predictions. This isn't a professional, but like, what do you see the market doing in the next 12 to 24 months, just according to Taylor? Um, the market generally, I'm not super optimistic, to be honest. I think it's going to be a tough couple years. Um, that's definitely the feeling we get. We went to a conference on the East coast, um, a week ago and 
I think uh, things are going to be tough for a little bit. I think interest rates are going to keep climbing, and that's going to make um, buying really difficult. Um, luckily, we have a GC that that builds our projects um, in Texas. So these new projects that we're starting, that's they self-perform a 70% of their own work. So um, we feel a lot more confident in their pricing. But I think it's going to halt construction on a lot of other projects where trades are limited and there's more layoffs. Um, I think it's going to be tough for sure. Yeah. Do you see, like, what's your guys' biggest obstacle? Is it labor, finding labor? Is it interest rates? What is it? Is it finding the deal? That's a good question. Yeah, I'd say, honestly, the the biggest struggle for us is putting together the the equity on the deals. So just because of the time that it takes, uh, I mentioned that we're kind of a family and friends shop. So we raise money with family and friends, and that takes time. Um, but a lot of that is because Helu itself is a newer entity, and we're nurturing relationships that will be long-term and spending sure. a lot of time with people, yeah. helping them understand us. And I don't think we'll be spending all of that time long-term, but at least up front, introducing people to how we do business and raising money for deals is probably the, the most difficult and time-consuming. Um, everything else is a little bit more like clockwork. One last question. What, do you, what are you seeing right now with costs, whether it's labor costs, um, I guess two different buckets, labor costs specifically, but also material costs and supply chain bottlenecks. Are you starting to see things ease back up with all the supplies that you guys need and cost dropping? What are you seeing? I think availability of materials is easing up a little bit over the past six months. Um, and pricing did come down. Uh, you know, lumber was at its peak um, earlier this year, and it's certainly come down from that point. Um, but overall, costs are increasing. There's no question, and especially cost of labor is still going yeah. up dramatically. What about finding labor? Um, for us, we've got a great outsourced HR department that helps us to okay. hire. Um, we uh, we definitely struggle like anybody else in markets like Texas to find the right people. Um, multifamily and uh, property management is is notorious for being a high turnover market, so we're always hiring. Yeah. Um, on site. Um, beyond that, it hasn't been super difficult, but certainly there's an adjustment to the cost of labor right now. Cool. Well, I appreciate you coming on, Taylor. Somebody wants to get in contact with you guys. What's the best way? Um, so our website is helucapital.com. Um, H-E-L-U-C-A-P-I-T-A-L.com. And we're also um, Helu Capital on Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, and our emails are on there. You can reach out to me directly. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, Taylor. Yep. Thanks, Brandon. Appreciate it.